The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is Philippians 4, 14-23. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel— When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Amen. It is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, we, uh, we come now, Lord, with eager hearts, and we ask that you would make them... Uh, all the more eager, uh, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, uh, ears to hear, that you would touch our lips to taste the sweetness, Lord, that you would give us hearts to receive uh, everything that you have for us in this, your word. Uh, Lord, we ask it in the matchless name of Jesus, the seed who crushed the serpent's head in the Alpha and Omega. Amen. So there he sits, uh, putting quill to papyrus, but he is not um, chilling in some bougie coffee shop, nursing a nice mocha latte, getting caught up on his thank you notes. Paul's in prison. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. He's in prison in in Rome. Uh, When we come to the letter of Philippians, we're actually joining Paul at the end of Acts chapter 28. Uh, He's living there for about two years, uh, chained guarded by Roman soldiers uh, in a rented house at his own expense. And uh, he can receive visitors. He can can share the gospel with anyone who comes by and bumps into him. He can can write letters, but make no mistake about it. Caesar has him on lockdown under constant surveillance. Uh, Paul has written in Philippians, and and we have sat under the preaching uh, these last many weeks of a letter about hope and joy in Christ, contentment in Christ, a a call to humility in our relationships with one another, an invitation to realize uh, that all our self-reliance and self-righteousness is just a pile of crap, and instead to be invited to receive uh, the robe of Christ's righteousness, as Isaiah would say, or or to engage in what Jeremiah would call an exchange, to, to have our crown of ashes traded for his crown of beauty. Uh, Paul didn't quite know when his imprisonment would end. In fact, this would not be his final imprisonment, but he knew how he wanted his letter to end. He wanted to speak to the Philippians and to us really about three things. One, the partnership of the gospel. 
because ministry is a team sport. Secondly, the promise of glory, because our God is not a tightwad. And finally, uh, the power of grace, because it has, it has a spreading effect. Uh, the partnership with the gospel, you know, Paul would often use athletic terminology for his Christian life and his ministry. He would speak of it as a race or, or fighting the good fight, etc. The bottom line for Paul, though, is he knew that it was a team sport. We can't go it alone. He knew this well. He constantly asked his readers to, to pray for him, uh, to remember his chains. We see that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. At the end of his life, at his final imprisonment, Paul writes to his young son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, Timothy, everyone but Luke has departed. They've all left me. I need you to make sure and come before winter. And as you come, make sure and bring my, bring my books bring my books, and bring my cloak that I left at Troas. Paul knew uh, what he was going to be facing in his Roman dungeon prison cell, the, the, the dank cold, just, just the bitter, raw cold that he was going to be facing in that imprisonment. But here, in Philippians 4, verses 14 to 23, uh, he moves from contentment in Christ. We heard about that last week, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, from contentment in Christ, verse 13, to gratitude. Um, because the Philippians shared in his trouble. And, and Paul was open about the trouble that he had faced. You can go and read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and Paul lays out the sufferings that he endured as a minister of the gospel. I've been in, in trouble from my countrymen. I've been in trouble from Gentiles. I've been in trouble from beatings and whippings. I've been in trouble uh, from the cold. I've been naked. I've been hungry. I've faced a night and a day in the open sea. He had a PhD in trouble and, and, and in suffering uh, for the gospel uh, and he was thankful that the Philippians uh, were with him. Now, here's the thing. The Roman Empire was a conquering empire. They, they were a conquering empire. And they were more than willing, though, uh, when they would go and defeat a nation, to allow that defeated peoples to retain their gods and retain uh, their, their religions. It actually made for a more peaceful takeover and subjugation. Uh, they, they were very, very tolerant as long as the defeated peoples would mix into their faith, would mix into their religion, emperor worship. They'd make offerings to Caesar. Uh, they, they would offer up prayers and sacrifices and incense to Caesar as the ultimate Lord. And so Rome was, was very tolerant of other religions, except for one. Uh, the religion of those who would bow the knee to only one Lord, a crucified criminal rabbi from Nazareth. You know, the reality is persecution is, um, is with us today. You can go to Voice of the Martyrs, persecution.org. You can read what our sisters and brothers are going through the world over. Uh, Ligon Duncan, the PCA pastor and theologian, just posted on his socials a few, a few days ago an article from Christianity Today. Uh, there is an, an EPC pastor, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. We actually uh, partner. We have a missional partnership, a gospel partnership with an EPC church up in Germantown, a church plant there. This particular EPC pastor is Andrew Brunson. And um, for the last 18 months or more, he has been held in a Turkish uh, Turkish prison. For, for, many, for many, many months, he was held without charges, with, without bail, uh, but now he's been accused of some very vague, spurious um, charges of being a threat to the Turkish government. In reality, the only threat there is a threat of the gospel scattering the darkness because of his, because of his ministry. Uh, Brunson is the pastor of Resurrection Church. He's been there since 1993 and, and has planted churches all over, uh, all over Turkey. You and I have Turkish sisters and brothers because of the ministry 
of, um, of Pastor Brunson. His daughter uh, reported that the physical and psychological torment he's been enduring in prison has resulted in him losing over, over 50 pounds. Uh, in a letter uh, from March of this year, he wrote, and I quote, let it be clear, I am in prison, not for anything I have done wrong, but because of who I am, a Christian pastor. I desperately miss my wife and children, he continued. Did I believe this to be true? It is an honor to suffer for Jesus Christ, as many have before me. My deepest thanks for all those around the world who are standing with and praying for me. And still he languishes in prison. And we need to pray. Remember that name, Pastor Andrew Brunson. Pray uh, that the Lord would protect him, that he would deliver him. In fact, let's just, Father, we, um, we come now. Lord, here we are. Here we are in the comfort and uh, the joy of this morning, and there he is, the joy of suffering for Christ. Uh, Lord, we ask in the strong name of Jesus, be his shield, his buckler, his strong tower, and would you deliver him? Would you soon return him to his church, to his flock, to his family? And Lord, we, we would ask that uh, in the midst of his imprisonment, that um, as you're about to break his chains, that you would break the chains of those who are in darkness and unbelief, that you would draw people to Christ because of what you're doing there. Oh, Lord Jesus, um, protect him and deliver him. Come, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, for we ask it in your name. Um, but again, Paul here at the end of the book of Acts, he's living in a rented house, and so the Philippians basically send rent money. They, they send money to help with his, uh, with his expenses. Uh, this idea of the, of the koinonia, the fellowship of giving and receiving. Paul uses language in the Greek there uh, of a credit and debt and settling of accounts. You see, the Philippians considered themselves indebted to Paul because of his gospel ministry, and, and they committed themselves to support his ministry. Eusebius, an early church historian, said that after this imprisonment that Paul was able to go to the western extent, it is possible that Paul was able to make good on his desire to go to Spain, in part because of the support of, of, his, of his ministry. Uh, Paul had developed a, a really robust theology of stewardship, and in fact, we read about it in, first, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, where we read that the Macedonians were always eager to help, and the chief church among the Macedonians was that of the Philippians, and what makes it so amazing is that Paul says of them, you gave out of your poverty. It was sacrificial giving. And understand this, sacrificial giving is always generous giving. Whether it is a little or a lot, when it is sacrificial, uh, it, is, it is generous. We, we are called to be sacrificial toward one another in, in the body of Christ. Uh, we, we read just a, a couple of pages earlier, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And Paul says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form and appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a Roman cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on the earth, above the earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. What would it look like if you and I, in the way that we interact, would just, um, we would empty ourselves. We, we would uh, lay everything aside and, and humble ourselves before each other. And not just act like adults, but act like those who are mysteriously united to Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, freed up uh, from our obsession with stuff and, and self to the point that all we have and all we are is available to each other. What if this mutual commitment 
uh, to one another, um, even to the point of, of knowing in a heart of hearts, we would lay our lives down for each other uh, if necessary. What, what, it, what would it look like if it could simply um, be a willingness to be inconvenienced for each other, um, to really hear each other, to see each other? Uh, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, to hope all things, believe all things, keep no record of wrongs, among each other, uh, for me to take greater delight when you get the recognition than when I do, uh, for us to find compassion toward one another and tenderness toward one another more delicious than gaslighting and, and grudge holding. Giving, giving of ourselves uh, is gaining, beloved. It, it is gaining. And sacrificial giving, again, is always generous giving. It is an act of spiritual worship. We read about that in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It is a spiritual act of worship when we offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice. And if our bodies, then all we are, all we have, open-handed, and, and we hold it out uh, to each other. Uh, some of you noticed on my Instagram or, or Facebook or Twitter last night, uh, I joined uh, a sister and, and some brothers from uh, all over the Nashville Presbytery uh, for an evening of bourbon and cigars. Uh, that's not the main reason. We were there for that, but that wasn't the main reason we were there. We were there to hear the story and the ministry of an RUF campus minister named Chase Dawes, who is ministering in a part of the country where he is, it is only 3% churched. Over 100 countries are represented at the school where he is the campus minister. He said that, that upper middle class kids come down from Portland, Oregon, and they, they uh, tell him, we have never even met a Christian. I've lived my whole life, and I've never even encountered a live Christian face to face. He's at Berkeley, and he's doing, he's doing ministry there. And the excitement in the room at the prospect of being able to support and go into gospel partnership with him among everyone who was there um, I mean, you talk about impacting culture. You talk about the, the westward extent. Um, I, I would uh, assure you that our own Kevin Teasley, who is the National Director for Development for Reformed University Fellowship, would love nothing more uh, than to talk with you about, um, about how you can beg him to take your money so that college students uh, can encounter the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in campuses all over, all over this uh, nation um, you remember just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Bob Bradshaw threw some pie charts up on the screen, uh, the stats that were up there about your generosity, your sacrificial giving. It's incredible. 37, some 37% of our resources are prayerfully, carefully stewarded into gospel partnership, missional partnerships uh, at home and abroad, church plants, ministries of, of, of all kinds. I would encourage you to go to the website and click on uh, missional living, read the blog, click on missional news and notes, and just start reading the stories of the way that resources are being poured, stewarded into the lives of those who desperately need a healing touch of the gospel. Be begin with the story of Church of a Second Chance, which reaches out to incarcerated men. It's just incredible what Cami and the team are, are doing uh, in, in calling us in into gospel partnership. It's a team sport. We need each other. The race is long. And, and here's the thing. Given your sacrificial generosity here at Christ Presbyterian, I'm, I'm convinced, uh, dare I say, that Paul would have had to write an epistle to the Nashvillians saying, thank you for not letting the Philippians foot my rent bill uh, by themselves. Gospel partnership. Paul talks about the promise of glory, verses 19 to 20. Why? Because our God is not a tightwad. This is good theology, what Paul, what Paul says here. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. It's really a way of summing up the gospel. Uh, God in Christ, living, dying, paying for our sins on the cross, rising from the grave because it could not hold him, ascending, returning to God, and then promising to return to us. God in Christ, electing us, setting his forever love upon you before the world ever was, justifying you, declaring that you are right in his sight, sanctifying you, growing you up and making you more like Jesus in in holiness and and in trust. Nothing we need will ever be denied uh, to, to us. What are those riches that Paul has in mind? They're strewn all over his letters, especially the letters that he wrote while he was in prison at the end of Acts. Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, they're all over the place. We see it in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. The riches that are ours, we have been lavished with grace. The blood has covered all of our sins. We have been chosen. We have been adopted. It's incredible. You turn the page to Ephesians 2, verses 4 and following through verse 10, and he tells us that we have been made alive with Christ. We have been plugged into the truly living one. We've been saved from death to life, from darkness to light. We have been raised and seated with Christ. It is by grace we have been saved. Even the faith whereby we trust in Christ is a gift God gives to us. Even the good works we live out in obedience are his gifts manifesting themselves in us. It's all of his grace, everything that we need. We see it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 23. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, that would be guys like me, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless. Just stop there for a second. Given the week you've had, given the things you might have done, given the things you might have clicked on, given the things you might have said, can you imagine being presented holy and blameless before God at the last day. Yet that's his commitment. That's the eschatological vision Paul has or the end-time vision Paul has for you. And we see it in chapter 1 of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am confident of this. And when Paul says he's confident of something, our ears need to perk up and we need to get confidence too. I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it through to the day of completion in Christ Jesus. The good news for folks who struggle like me and like you, the good news for folks who screw up in the most embarrassing and absurd ways like me and like you is that God causes our salvation. He carries our salvation and he promises to complete our salvation. All of our needs are supplied. What what you and I need is to have all of our wants and desires attenuated by our greatest want, our greatest desire. And whether we realize it or not, and listen carefully, whether we realize it or not, all our desires are actually an echo of our greatest desire. And whether we realize it or not, our greatest desire actually happens to be our greatest need. Psalm 37, 4, the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Here's here's the reality. You and I were designed for desire. We were designed to desire. That's part of the Christian tradition, all the way from St. Aurelius Augustine, who lived way back in 354 to 430, or or Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 1703 to 58, or C.S. Lewis, 1898 to 1963, or you and me, 2018. We are designed for desire. We can't escape it. The problem is we, we try to fill it up with so many, so many things. We, we lick the salt block of our lust and say, slake my thirst. And, 
and we just remain parched, and we, we, don't, we don't know why, and our hearts break because we go through heavy stuff, right? We just sang about standing on the verge of Jordan and our anxious fears. Bid my anxious fears subside. You know, one of the things I've noticed over the last couple of months is that uh, some of you in your socials um, have posted pictures and reflections and memories of, uh, of loved ones that, that you've lost. I know one of the things, I speak for Todd, I speak for all the pastors here, uh, our greatest privilege, our greatest privilege is when you privilege us and when you honor us with being able to hold your hand at a graveside or a bedside and, and our hearts break with you. Well, if God's going to meet all my needs, why am my heart breaking like this? If God's going to meet all my needs, why am I dealing with a heart that's breaking? And C.S. Lewis tells us that we're created for desire. We're created for longing and that God is committed to meeting all of our desires. Um, you know, I love show and tell. Uh, when I was a little kid, you know, you have show and tell at school. You take something. Uh, I'm going to do a little show and tell here. Um, I have here in my hot mitts a British first edition of C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. Got it at McKay's. God bless McKay's used books. I'm convinced it's going to be in the new heaven and new earth. $7.50. That's what I got this for. Lewis is talking about uh, in the four loves, as you know, our hearts breaking uh, at the prospect of bereavement and death. And, and the fact that we, 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 we stand at the graveside of someone that we love so deeply. And he says, um, in heaven, there will be no anguish and no duty of turning away from our earthly beloveds. First, because we shall have turned already from the portraits to the original, from the rivulets to the fountain, from the creatures he made lovable to love himself. But secondly, because we shall find them all in him, by loving him more than them, we shall love them more than we do now. <laughs> but all that is far away in the land of the Trinity, not here in exile in the weeping valley, down here, it is all loss and renunciation. The very purpose of bereavement, so far as it affects ourselves, may have been to force this upon us. We are then compelled to try to believe what we cannot yet feel, that God is our true beloved. That is why bereavement is in some ways easier for the unbeliever than for us. He can storm and rage and shake his fist at the universe, and if he is a genius, write poems like Hoosman's or Hardy's. But we, at our lowest ebb, when the least effort seems too much for us, must begin to attempt what seems an impossibility. To believe that God's going to meet all of our needs in Christ. That he's holding out for us the promise and the hope of, of heaven itself. You know, when you read Lewis and, and, uh, and you get to the end of the, of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, and uh, there, there they are, and you know, Lewis talks about every rock, every flower, every blade of grass just looked as if it meant actually more. And, and the unicorn speaks up and says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. This is what I was longing for all along, and I didn't even know it. It's just a, a way for children of Lewis saying the same thing he says to us. There are times when I think we don't desire heaven at all, but more often I find uh, myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts uh, we have ever desired anything else. He says the faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures, and even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management, right? I can't handle pleasure. 
I do all kinds of sinful things with it, but, but I'm created for it. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, Lewis asked, of that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. Think about it. The whole man, who you are, body and soul, what is promised to you in the new heaven and new earth is that you are going to drink joy, full drafts of joy. And it is going to permeate you, body and soul. You ain't seen nothing yet. He says that in the weight of glory. Glory, it's interesting, the weight of glory. The Hebrew word for glory, kavod, means heaviness, weightiness. The weightiness of God's character. The heaviness of of his person. Um, Think about about God's glory held out for us. What what he has promised to us. Yet I seek pleasure in so many different things. You know, if, if you're here and you're a boomer, you know, you, you sing with Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction, though I try and I try and I try. I can't get no da-da-da satisfaction, or you're Gen X and you sing with Bono, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, or maybe if you're Gen Z, or you're just really like bleeding edge cool like I am, uh, you listen, or you have teenagers, uh, you listen to John Bellion, uh, John Bellion's a hip-hop artist who wrote a song about uh, how our souls have this craving. He's a Christian uh, hip-hop artist. He's writing about how our souls have this, this craving, and we seek to fill them up in so many different ways. Um, he says, um, I hit them with boots in July. No, I don't need snow. I got to go bigger. I got to go bigger. I dropped $5,000 in a coat because it's fly. No, I don't speak broke. I got to go bigger. I got to go bigger. Uh, There's an aching. There's a hole in my chest. It's amazing that the crown of a king doesn't change me. It's amazing. Because, baby, we all want, we all need fashion. We all want, we all need fashion. A voice inside tells me I might need my soul. But that's when I remember we all need fashion. In other words, there's there's this voice inside of me telling me I was created for more. And all of the stuff and all of the sex and all of the the pleasures that I am running to and, and, and mounting them up like idols and saying, satisfy me, fulfill me. They can't do it. My soul is telling me you were created for more. But then I just sort of anesthetize myself to it and remind myself, just bring on more stuff. Just bring on more stuff. Bring on more sex. Bring on more influence. Bring on more of whatever I think is going to fill me up, and I'll just, I'll just turn that, that voice away. The question is, how do I go bigger than the glory of God, what he has in store for me? Uh, yet, I seek my satisfaction in more stuff, more sex, more prestige, more recognition, more, you fill, in, you fill in the blank. You know, Edwards says Christ is a river. Jonathan Edwards, Christ is a river. A river is continually flowing. There are fresh supplies of water coming from the fountainhead continually so that man may live by and be supplied with with water all his life. So Christ is an ever-flowing fountain continually supplying his people, and the fountain is never spent. They who live upon Christ may have fresh supplies from him to all eternity. They may have an increase of blessedness and joy and love that is new and new still and will never come to an end. Edwards preached a simplified version of that in 1751 to a group of Housatonic Indians in Stockbridge, Massachusetts that Jesus is a fountain, he's a river that will meet their needs. And he said, the little streams you're turning to will never meet your needs. Reminds me of, of Jill Pohl in the silver chair negotiating with Aslan and all of his motionless bulk. She's dying of thirst, and she says, well, I'm just going to go find another stream. And what does Aslan say to her? There is no other stream. 
what would it look like for you, for me, right in the middle of the summer um, to start fresh, to come to Jesus and, and to say to him, slake my thirst, fill me up, um, satisfy me, forgive me, make me new, draw me near again, bring feeling back to my anesthetized soul. He'll do it. He's eager to do it. But there is no other stream. That good theology leads to an unavoidable doxology. Paul says to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. These are Godward words. These are God-worthy words. Praise breaks loose in Paul's heart at the very thought of being so freed up in the confidence that God will never fail to meet our needs. He makes good on every promise. If I can get away with it, one more show and tell. You know, Scott quotes a lot from Charles Spurgeon in the pulpit here. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great London Baptist prince of preachers. I have here in my hot mitts something else. We'll show and tell. This is a page, this is a manuscript page from one of Spurgeon's sermons with his own handwriting on it. Sometimes I just get it out and I hold it and smell it and think, can I smell the cigar smoke in this from Charles Spurgeon? I, I love what he says. Um, what he says in this sermon fits with what, uh, with what we're talking about this morning. His sermon preached on September 28, 1890. He says, um, it seems to me that there are two books which a Christian ought to study. The one is the big book, the big book. The, the other is the little book of, uh, of his life. If the believer lives long enough, uh, he will write into that little book, into our lives, um, he will write into that little book all that there is in, in the great book, the big book, the Bible. Only he will change the tense. When, when the great book saith, I will do this or I will do that, we shall find in the little book, God has done this and God has done that. God has never failed to meet our, our needs. He's kept all of his promises. What do you need this morning? What, what do you need this morning? And then ask yourself, what is your heavenly father's track record with you? Has he ever actually failed you? Has he ever actually failed me? Now listen, him refusing to be my personal assistant, him refusing to be recreated in my own image, him refusing to be my personal genie in a bottle is not the same as him never having failed me. Um, him being our God, our, our Father, whose eternal glory is bound up with your good and your happiness and, and your joy, that you would live forever body and soul in the new heaven and new earth whose grace will be more and more amazing to you a million decades into eternity than it, uh, than it even begins to appear now. That's the power of grace. Paul ends that way. He ends with the power of grace. It, it has a spreading effect. He actually speaks about the Catholicity of the church. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He wanted every saint to be reminded that they are saint, in part because there were a couple of women in the church who were at odds, Yodia and Syntyche. He wanted them to get along. He said, remind every single saint. Every one of you are in Christ He's speaking of the Catholicity of the church because if you think about it, he's writing from Rome. He's sending greetings from believers in Rome to, to believers in Philippi. Even some in Caesar's house had come to faith as they encountered this strange prisoner named Paul. Custody of Paul was not containment of the gospel. In fact, his imprisonment allowed him interaction with some of Caesar's uh, household and some who were in Caesar's service. <laughs> Caesar thought he had contained Paul. What Caesar had done was unleash the gospel in his own household. I love God's sense of humor. He thought he had Paul under lock and key. God had Paul in mission. Prison became a pulpit. His chains became a church. 
But whether believers in Rome or Philippi, there was a bond that bound them, grace to ground them, being saints in Christ Jesus, being in union with Jesus Christ, that means we are a part of a massive family. Our hearts should ache and break for our Turkish sisters and brothers worried about their, their pastor in prison suffering. We're part of a massive family from every tribe, tongue, and nation and denomination. We read about that in Revelation. What would that mean then for the way we feel about each other here at Christ Pres? If we're a massive family from shore to shore, north, south, east, and west, what would it say about how we feel about each other? Could we begin to ask what would it look like for us to be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, it is right that I feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. What would it look like to hold each other in our hearts? He comforts them, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Every Every one of Paul's letters begin grace to you, and they all end grace be with you. Paul was comforted by their sacrifice. They sent rent money, but it was a sacrifice of praise, a sweet, fragrant offering. And the Philippians would be comforted by the grace of God in Christ, who came and gave his life as a sacrifice of praise, a sweet fragrance as he was offered up on the altar, splayed on a brutal and bloody cross once for all time. That's, that's the reason grace is about to come to you in the preaching of the word and in the tasting and smelling and taking in of the word. Grace is about to come to you, spread out on this table. We're going to smell as, as a family the, the, the sweetness of Christ's sacrifice, even as I smelled the bread baking in our kitchen yesterday. We're going to taste the strength of his sacrifice, even as we lift the cups up to our lips. But here's what I want us to do this morning. As we come to the table and you hold the bread and you hold the cup, hold each other. Hold each other in your hearts. Believe all things. Hope all things. And end with Philippians and say, I am going to empty myself and give myself to each other. I got all the reason in the world to do that. I'm no longer my own. I belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we come. Uh, we ask now, would you do a work of grace in our hearts as, as we taste the bread and we taste the wine? Oh, give us grace to taste and see, Lord Jesus, that indeed you are good. For we ask it in your precious name. Amen.